to A Better Way, the podcast. A Better Way is a network of people here in the UK who are striving to improve services, build community and create a fairer society. The aim of the podcast is to showcase stories about new and often radically better ways of transforming the way we do things, mainly by focusing on four areas. One, putting relationships first. Two, listening to each other. Three, sharing and building power. And four, joining forces. I'm Polly Neat. I'm the Chief Executive of Shelter. And I'm Roger Martin. I'm the co-founder of The Mindset Difference, which is a small leadership and team development practice based in southwest London. So, Polly, we're going to meet Karin Woodley today. What, what are you looking forward to speaking to her about? Well, I've heard Karin speak quite a lot, um, and in particular about radical listening, which I'm fascinated by as somebody trying to listen to people's lived experience, trying to listen to colleagues and just sort of the day-to-day struggles we all face with that. I'm, I'm really interested by her concept of radical listening and how she makes it work in all those different contexts. Yeah, it's a great term, isn't it? Radical listening, what's that? Yes, I've heard Karen speak before and um, she's been a great advocate for us being expert change makers. And um, I was struck by that. You know, we've got to we've got to get that right, and you know, be professional in that and expert in that. So that's what I'm looking forward to talking to her about. Let's see what she's got to say. Here we are with Karin Woodley. Karin, welcome to the podcast. Welcome. Hello. Hello. We kind of like to start really by you introducing yourself and. Perhaps give the audience a feel for the field you work in or the world you work in or however you describe the uh, spheres you operate in and what your work's about. Okay, well, there isn't an awful lot of logic to what I'm doing or how I've got here. I'm qualified in really nowt else than um, as a classical musician. I've studied music and the experience of being in London music colleges in the late 70s, early 80s, was not altogether pleasant for uh, a black classicist. It would have been better if I'd wanted to play jazz and that kind of stuff. So that was one, I suppose, formative experience. I'm of dual heritage, which meant that sort of growing up in the 60s and 70s and living in London, that kind of stuff, I was very politicised, yeah. I mean, nauseatingly politicised, you know, with a huge Afro wanting to be Angela Davis. I've been, you know, I think I was in the Revolutionary Communist Party by the age of 16 and was going to Greenham Common, you know, that kind of stuff. So I'm a political animal. And therefore, the experience of being not only a classical musician, but also an early music specialist was really unpleasant. Yeah. And I realised early on that there was absolutely no chance that given the racism that I could pursue a professional career. Um, And so when I left college, I kind of sat on the steps of an organisation that was a bit like a race equality organisation in the arts and begged them to employ me. 
So the basis of all of that is that I started off with a, a primary interest in racism within arts and culture. So for the first part of my career, that was very much the focus. And so I started off in the black voluntary sector, worked as a consultant in the black voluntary sector with arts organisations around the country doing research and that kind of stuff. Wrote quite a lot because I was involved in publishing various kind of black arts magazines and that kind of stuff. But I then spent some time in a kind of contemporary arts organisation that wasn't in the black voluntary sector. Was a single parent, you know, Was I'm a nerd, so I could do all the finance and accountancy bit, loved VAT and all of those things that the sector hates. And really what has got me here in terms of the organisation I run now is the fact that um, for, for a period I went, to run um, an arts venue in Notting Hill and that opened up opportunities to explore arts and culture alongside policing, healthcare, housing and that kind of stuff and so that began my journey into kind of moving into I suppose social activism in a broadest sense so whereas I started off as a black cultural activist I then became more broadly a social activist and have worked I mean the joy of my experience I've worked in the arts I've worked in employment I've worked in education I've worked in architecture the built environment you know I've worked across a whole range of things and by hook or by crook that's ended up with me at Cambridge House, which is, uh, you know, a, a 19th century settlement and um, a kind of social change, social action organisation. So that's the kind of journey. But it's there's not been a logic in terms of hierarchical progression or sector progression. I think the only things are that I'm a nerd. I like things new and um I get cross quickly about lack of human rights, that kind of stuff. And I've done work like in South Africa in the lead up to the elections in the early 80s. So I was working there when there was still apartheid training, freedom fighters to become members of government. You know, so I'm a political animal, but not a particularly party political animal because I'm a socialist. I think I've stopped being a Marxist. There was a period as a Trotskyite. Now I'm a socialist, and obviously the Labour Party doesn't particularly lend itself to any of those. So, wow, that was so interesting because I mean we've um, we sort of semi know each other a bit, but that's a lot of stuff I didn't know about you, Karen. So I um, was really happy to find some of that out. I I would really like you to talk about getting to the Better Way Network. Can you crystallise for us? the time when you realised for yourself the better way principles. So when you decide, really kind of decided that there, it sounds like your whole life you've been realising there's a better way of doing things, but when did you kind of come to your own realisation that what we know as the better way principles were fundamentally important? Um, I mean, if I'm really honest... The only reason I got involved with Better Way is because I'm fond of Steve Weiler, yeah? And I was highly suspicious of another, you know, bleep, bleep network to be involved in. You know, I've been a trustee of locality and da-da-da-da-da and community stuff. And I was just kind of thinking, I'm really disgruntled with 
not those organisations specifically, not at all, because I think they both have a role, but in the lack of aspiration in terms of change, yeah? You know, there's an old adage about, you know, one of the problems with the British bureaucracy is that we're always tinkering with structures that are kind of founded in Tudor times almost, you see what I mean? And so that even conceptualising change is really tricky. And funnily enough, it's one of the reasons why I've moved from perhaps being in posher, better paid, larger structures, because I just felt hampered in terms of really trying to, to move change by the size of structures. Do you see what I mean? And um, it, people like to say it's about getting back to what what's the, the coal face or the grassroots or all those ghastly phrases. But actually, for me, it's more about a personal need to, to be quite close to the changes in people's lives. Yeah, I'm less interested in the structures, which can all feel a little bit anarchist, but I do think, and it's been quite interesting in terms of um, the devolved governments, that they have struggled with that sort of the history of how we've always done things in a slightly more kind of, in a way that allows them to envision a different pathway. And I think the English horror, and I mean England in terms of, as opposed to the devolved nations, is just so bound up in how it's always done things and so when Steve was sort of saying come on Karen you need to get involved in this I was a little and I can't even remember what year it was it was a kind of slow process really because my first attraction to Better Way was just being amongst people you know like you who I don't get to see, do you know what I mean? The isolation. So my first interest was I feel less isolated as a chief executive. So that's that's was the original turn on, yeah? Oh, totally. But I think that actually there was a point, and I remember because it was at one of the um, annual meetings kind of thing, around the time they did the first book or something, or just before the first kind of collection of essays. Yeah, I remember, yeah. I can't remember what, what I was presenting on. It's probably whatever, you know, drivel I put in the first book, yeah? And the response from the people in the room was surprising to me in terms of looking at more than the words and the interconnectivity between change-making and advocacy and also the understanding that if we work in this sector, and we often waffle on about the difficulty of, of, of change-making, but actually, to me, that's the spine of what we do. So if we aren't specialists at change-making internally or externally, I don't understand what we are in the sector. And I think it was the willingness for a better way to say the status quo is unacceptable and we've got to stop tinkering with the edges. Yeah, I, I relate to that so much. The thing about, you know, if we're not about change, what on earth are we even doing here? And I loved what you said when you were talking about you know, your life and how you've got to this point. And you said something like, I think you said, I love things new. And I I just thought, yes, <laughs> exactly. And if when we have to want things new and 
not be tied to the way things have always been done. I, d- I just wanted to backtrack a bit because I I got that you were involved in social action at Cambridge House, but just for the for the listeners, could you say a little more about what that organisation is about? Okay, in its twenty first century frame, actually, you know, we, we still basically adhere to the original anti-poverty and promotion of social justice. Those are probably the sort of, you know, equality, justice and tackling ingrained, accepted levels of poverty. Yeah, so that really goes back to the 19th century. And strangely, at our roots, we were perhaps more radical than we've been probably since the late 80s, 90s, in the sense that, you know, the establishing of law centres, you know, the, the, the change-making in terms of the way the settlements were involved in the whole um, political thinking around the welfare state and all of those kinds of things. You know, there was a real social change drive that has left uh, a permanent mark on society. And I think that, that those permanent changes are very positive, yeah, even if they are actually disappearing at some rate since we had the the last recession you know the sort of 2009 thing but as we are currently structured we have a law center which we've had since 1894 and is um, probably most known for its housing cases and the fact that it's one court you know cases in the supreme court and had changes to laws and that kind of stuff But we also do employment discrimination, welfare benefits and have a crisis mitigation service. We do youth empowerment, disabled people's empowerment through arts, sports, creativity, life skills, that kind of stuff. We provide statutory advocacy service under the Mental Health, Mental Capacity and Care Act on tender to um, local authorities. And we have a project that's about seven years old that is kind of linked in, in terms of legal services and advocacy um, with a focus on the private rented sector. And so we do advocacy and publish research and we're training with the Met Police and all that kind of stuff about how to protect private rented sector um, tenants um, who have criminal landlords. And we do that in partnership with local authorities. We, up until last August, also ran a community hub that we have now sold and we don't intend to re-establish ourselves as a community hub because that kind of landlord infrastructure support, we think, is not what we do excellently. Yeah. So it's about what, what does society currently need and what's the best use of our resources and maintaining a Georgian large Georgian building without access to financial support was not something. So it was controversial, but actually it was a recognition of this is where society is now and what's the best use of our resources and where do we think we bring additionality to what the voluntary sector does as a whole. Thank you. That's helpful. I was just curious about your term around being expert in change making as you'd seen it apply to a better way how does that show up in the work of your organization do you see yourselves as that oh gosh yes and I I I don't think I'm capable of being a chief exec who doesn't make change you know when I was running the minorities arts advisory service we were 
absolutely critical at supporting the Arts Council to have its first black arts policies, to ensure that there were ethnic arts officers in every local authority, doing challenges to how, I think, what was then called Commonwealth Grants, I forgot what number of whatever, were being badly used to pay dinner ladies as opposed to bring in, say, you know, black specialists to support black community, you know, that kind of stuff. And then I continued that as a consultant um, at Tabernacle, you know, I, I was involved in, um, I, I was the, the community member of the Scotland Yard Gold Task Force for Carnival for many years. And actually, you know, that whole process, this isn't just about what I was doing, but that, that the process that got me there led to significant changes in the policing strategies around Carnival, the use of mediators. And, you know, Steve Lawrence, you know, our chief, first chief executive Steve Lawrence, we know it changed laws. We know. So for me, um, on a kind of very personal level, there's two things I measure my contribution, yeah, to society, yeah. One is, can I identify the positive change I've made in people's lives? Even if that's um, uh, in, in Notting Hill, there were three young people who were trying to steal my car. Yeah. And I happened to trundle up against them and said, look, what the hell are you doing? Um, you've got two options. I call the police or you come with me now. I took them back to the tabernacle. We got them involved in, in different courses. And, you know, one of their change journeys, I remember we had a contemporary art installation with words on the walls. And, and one of them said, you know, but that's not spelt right. And the other one said, well, it's conceptual art. Haven't you listened to her? You know, it, it's that kind of thing. And, um, you know, Steve and Lawrence, the young people who were seen as uh, being problems in local schools, being supported by us to go off and take part in a, a robotics competition funded by NASA in America and win awards. So those are the kind of personal journeys. But there's also the changes in law, the changes in systems. You know, I've done a lot of training with police and home office around um, leading through partnership, critical incident training. I've chaired independent advisory groups on race for the police. And, you know, for my own personal sense of self-worth, I can track where the activities I was involved in led to changes in social policy or legislation and that kind of stuff. And I, I am nerdy, I have OCD, and therefore I strive to achieve those things in quite a, a blinkered way and get very bored and very cross if it ain't happening. I can feel that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, it's a bit slight deviation, but I just got to ask you about it. I guess as a chief executive myself, I'm very interested in your approach to leadership because you're definitely a driver of change and you're in a leadership role now and you've been in other leadership roles. 35 years in leadership roles. I'm really old now. <laughs> well, me too, me too. So you are very much a leader and also passionately a socialist, as you said previously, and um somebody who really believes and this is where we do get to better way I guess in making sure that all voices are heard not least the voices of lived experience but also in the way you've talked about radical listening all of your colleagues and I just wondered about your 
um, approach specifically to leadership roles and some of the really difficult decision making that goes along with that. Um, that at the, at the end of the day does land on your desk, but you passionately believe in empowerment, engagement, making sure that you you listen to everyone concerned. And I just wondered how you balance all of that because it's not easy. Lots of trial and error, lots of mistakes. Yeah. If you're looking at it on a really practical level, there are various, I suppose, techniques. I believe, though it's not in my character, you know, my character is um, one of autocracy. You know, if, if, I, if I'm being self-aware, do you know what I mean? It's just like, you know, I want to be in charge. You know, the Leo in me comes out kind of stuff. So, you know, it would be wrong of me not to accept that or to reflect on that. But I do believe in kind of mentoring and coaching styles of leadership. Yeah. Which all well and good, but it sometimes means that you have delegated properly and that kind of stuff. So it can sometimes come back and bite you in the bum. Yeah. Um, because you've given people too much rope and then it all blows up in your face or they feel unsupported or, you know, so it's, it's a, it's a constant journey of trial and error, not only in terms of looking conceptually at how you lead, but also constantly reviewing your relationship with the people that you have, say, direct line management responsibility for. You know, I love bringing in, you know, we've had paid interns and young you know, exciting, anxious, you know, people who want to drive. And then, you know, sometimes you realise you've created a, a monster or that they're not fit to be employed anywhere else because they're not used to a more autocratic style. So that that's one thing. Uh, but what's quite interesting, and, and I don't know that I can properly analyse this effectively, But, you know, people always, if you say you pull the race card, it's always seen as being quite a negative thing. Well, for me, there's also a really positive thing. There is a whole symbolism for an organisation like Cambridge House appointing its first black chief executive. Yeah. And that sort of breaking through the glass ceiling has an impact for lots of people, but also for me has increased my awareness of things like, because I think, you know, the sector is really messed up by kind of class and all that kind of stuff. Do you know what I mean? And that to me is often more problematic than any of the protected characteristics. Yeah. Um, And in terms of creating really competent cultures. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Do you know, that's quite tricky. So when I say that the race card is kind of a positive thing, that also breaks down and or opens up opportunities to be slightly maverick in your leadership style because you're already maverick. <laughs> do, do you see what I mean? And I think the other thing that when there is the time and, you know, whatever it is, apart from obviously the kind of radical listening, and perhaps it's more important that I encourage the team to engage with radical listening. And I probably currently do more on radical listening externally than I do internally, you know, note to self, uh, New Year's resolution kind of thing. But because the change making aspect of what we do is really important, I like to deploy, to give it a, you know, a posh 
kind of frame or in my arsenal of cultural techniques is a thing it's a it's a trinidadian thing called liming yeah and where you sit around and you chew the fat and you know you talk politics and you talk whatever and you know you 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 play around with all those things i like creating time and space for that because that allows the inevitable predictable tensions and stresses to be viewed differently because there is a sense of common goal or change or commitment to a change process Do you, yeah does that make some sense definitely and I think those those in sort of informal conversations that you're talking about and getting to know each other is incredibly important in a network and in a leadership team and in an organization but the network's really really sexy on that basis because we just talk I mean I'm, I'm a great believer in Chatham House rules do you know what I mean? Because we're so often trapped oh, God, yeah. by propriety. And, you know, I'm growing old disgracefully. I'm more likely to behave badly now in work situations than I would have done 20 years ago. But you have to note that my first chief exec role, I think I was 25, 24. And that was of a national organisation. So you can imagine the horrors and mistakes I've made, as well as the sort of successes. And I was in an organisation where every other member of the organisation was significantly older than me. Mm. You, you used the term radical listening, which I think is just a wonderful term. Could you just unpack that for people a bit, Karin? There are lots of different potential ways of describing radical listening in terms of how it's used. Um, within the sort of therapeutic communities. I first came across it as a kind of marriage guidance technique, you know, not though I've been in marriage guidance. I don't think it was a technique that was used when I was in marriage guidance. But anyway, I am a real nerd. So that if I'm going into marriage guidance or thinking about a divorce, I study everything. And so as a result of going to, I don't know, the Tavi marriage guidance stuff, I thought, let me go and look at all of this. And that's how I came across the term radical listening. But within the frame of the Better Way Network, really, the objective is to encourage conversations where those members of society who are most excluded are given a voice, a dominant voice in change process. Yeah. And I think for all of us within the sector, and, you know, we've all been around consultation and da, 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 da. And, you know, as, as a black woman, I can't tell you how many times I've been asked to advise on consultation processes to get to the hardest to reach, you know, those horrible phrases, noting that usually the hardest to reach that they're talking about are only hard to reach by some services. The police reach them quite well and bang them up. So, you know, hard to reach is a very tricky phrase. And also realising that in terms of my personal history, my childhood history, I would, in many people's cases, be the hard to reach, yeah? You know, mother as an addict, you know, father in jail, you know, all of those kinds of things. So that, that's that's the context, yeah? But that the process of radical listening, I think, if done well, dismantles our traditional approach to consultation in that when we seek to consult, we often have a pre-prescribed agenda. Either it's something that our funders need or 
we want something to demonstrate that the change that we've proposed is going to work or at best to open up an opportunity for our so-called beneficiaries, a word that I hate because I think it's based in that kind of horrible patriarchal philanthropic kind of approach, you know, are allowed to tweak at the edges of something that we've already predetermined. Yeah. So in terms of making fundamental social change, we never actually empower the people most in need of those changes to take place in order for them to fulfill their life's potential and to be happy, um, to drive the change and tell us what the hell they want us to do. And that can lead into things like defining what kind of services we do. You know, and one of the frustrations of a law centre is, you know, you've got your legal aid agency contracts, there are restrictions on who can get it, you're doing housing or you're doing employment or you're doing whatever. And in fact, you know, people are, are, are facing challenges across all aspects of their life. For example, you know, we've had a case where, and I, 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 I you know, we've had somebody who was trafficked, was pregnant, was in a slum conditions, who was thrown out of a window by their landlord while pregnant, and that, and then the police didn't think it was a thought it was a civil issue, and did it, you know, and you're kind of thinking people's lives are real shit out there. You know, while we obsess about whether Harry and Meghan should be friends with William and Kate and all that kind of stuff, there are people whose lives are dismantling on all fronts. And they do have a view. They do have, you know, and they will say to you, I don't want you to just deal with the housing. Help, help, help. But actually our funding streams, our whatever, our contracts, our this is how we've always done it actually makes it very difficult for us to drive the changes that are need needed to actually a change people's lives and b change people's society and so radical listening means when you engage with people you shut the um up you have to get rid of your preconceptions you've got to you know so it's and like you've met me, shutting me the um up is really hard. So I'm not a natural radical listener. Do you see what I mean? But you just have to listen to the the gaps between pe- what people say. It's the open ended questioning that you get from knowing about um, you know conflict resolution. It's using some of those techniques from conflict resolution. But actually, it's that stop going in with a plan. Yeah. The third thing I'd say about radical listening is that it's not a quick fix. And this is where it's a real challenge to us. And I think the essence of it needs to be in our ways as a sector of doing things, because it will never fit into the electoral timelines that define so much of the reality of what we do. You know, we know that there's going to be an election in a year's time, so all the policies will change and we're we're forever responding to the status, the changes in the status quo that actually don't change anything, where in fact we want something much more revolutionary, but we base our thinking and our analysis on the people who, if you're going to be really political, are actually the controllers of power, means of production and that kind of stuff. We let them define how our organisations work and the timescales on which we develop our thinking. And radical listening ought to be a technique that breaks that cycle. If that was the case then, 
because I guess we've talked about radical listening and you've talked about change and how, you know, at the end of the day, if we're not about real change, there's a problem there. And I just wondered if you could sort of outline a bit of your vision about the role of radical listening in creating real fundamental change in society. What's your what's your vision? What what does success look like ultimately if we were to really understand the value specifically of radical listening as a tool for change, for fundamental change? I think it only works as a tool for fundamental change if we as a voluntary sector and a set of charities stop doing the master's bidding. I think for me, and I don't know if it's chicken or egg, we've got to stop ourselves from seeing our success in terms of maintaining our organisations and maintaining their historic relationships. Success means some of us will go, yeah, we'll work in very different ways um, because I don't think radical listening as a process with service users works while we stay in a master-servant relationship with the state. Um, I do, however, think that radical listening could improve the way we operate internally as managers, and that could, as a process, create a different type of momentum and understanding of how to engage. But, you know, if we're honest, too many of us know that our staff actually, the way they talk about service users, stigmatise them. They see the service users as other from them. And so... For me, I think the fundamental thing is to break our complicit involvement in the privatisation of social services, the state, etc., etc. And I'm not throwing stones here. I take on awful government contracts and that kind of stuff as well. So I'm not quite answering your question. It sounds like you're saying, though, you're kind of quoting, in a way, the master's tools will never destroy the master's house. And you're sort of saying, use radical listening as a different sort of tool that does have the potential to dismantle the master's house. But we've got to be prepared to to kind of really bust an analogy. But we've got to be prepared to be a bit less cosy in that house ourselves kind of thing. Yeah, we'll be scarred. And it's exactly the same about, you know, the whole diversity debate and charities too white. You know, I've, you know, the bottom line is that when we all sit around and talk about it, generally in um, a situation where the black and minoritised people are the minority in the room, Cough, I just want to say, well, actually, you're just going to have to step aside because I'm going to have your job. You, you know, it, it's a real tricky one, yeah? Um, because shifting power is scary for those in power. It's equally scary for those who haven't got power because they then are more likely to have um, profound um, imposter syndrome. <laughs> so, you know, and you see some of these things working out in, in, in places like South Africa. Do you see what I mean? Where there are log jams and that kind of stuff. And, you know, we're too coy in Britain to talk about revolution in any other way than we're expecting it to be armed or whatever but I do want charities in the voluntary sector to be more revolutionary and to be more self-aware that if I'm successful at this it may not be so easy for me to get a job 
or my organization might get much smaller. Because if you think as a chief exec, how many times have you been recruited? And as part of the recruitment process, you've had to say how you'll triple the turnover of the organization or how long it will take you. Like, what? You know, some organizations don't deserve to get bigger. So, you know, some organizations be much more effective, merged or small or whatever, because that's how they'd be more effective rather than waiting until we get into a financial crisis. Totally. And and I think we're very attached to the idea that because we are in charities, what we're doing is valuable um, rather than sort of judging whether it's valuable based on the people that we're doing it to kind of a thing. There is an awful smugness sometimes and smugness leads to a kind of complacency. And again, I would accuse myself of that. You know, I'm, this isn't about pointing fingers because, you know, all the worst things that I'm talking about, I've done. over the years so it's sort of you know there's a real refreshing honesty about that saying that though to be able to say that I think it's lovely in pursuing this radical power shift you must be up against some challenges I wonder if we can turn to a particular challenge that we might be able to wonder about and um, see whether anything new emerges from our wonderings a radicalist thing's a funny one because people think they haven't got time for it. Time seems to trump all, all else. Yeah. Have we got time? Can we fit it in? How do we sustain our funding, etc., etc., while we make these changes? Yeah. It's something that I think, particularly in pandemic recovery, the fact that some of us are still affected by the 2009 recession and then we're, we're getting into a deepening recession of cost of living. There's a real fear that if we don't maintain the status quo, or for me, I'm sometimes really scared within my organisation, that if I don't sustain the status quo, the service users will get nout. And the status quo at least provides them with some support. Yeah. And so the, the thing that I grapple with is the speed of change. Yeah. And expectations around the speed of change. And the ethics of maintaining problematic partnerships or funding relationships because you think a little is better than none. So I think it's that fear of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. That, to me, is the biggest issue that troubles me at night. And it's the same one you know, when you think of divesting a service or that kind of stuff, and you can see your organisation going down. And for us, it was the selling of our community hub. 133 years providing a community hub. And you say, you're going to let it go. You know, the arguments for keeping it were easy, easy. The arguments for whether or not we should keep it because we could sustain it or do it well were much trickier. And it took nine years to make the decision if truth were told i knew in my first six months that we had to get rid of the building just on a financial basis have you got any questions there polly do you want to dig in a bit or i have a bit because i think this is so key for organizations and i just want us to really get our heads around what we're talking about karen are you in a way talking about how we in organizations conceptualize risk Yes, because I wonder what your board might have seen as being the risks of um, losing your community hub, and under all of those headings, you know, reputational, um, blah blah blah, you know, all the different sort of 
potential risk areas that you could explore in making a decision like that. Is it about how you balance that that whole set of risks and risk management, which actually is not unimportant, actually, against what you almost like an ideal um, that you want to pursue uh, as an organisation and how you how you keep risk in its right place. Is that kind of part of what you're talking about? I think it's risk and sentiment because when we talk about the status quo, we sometimes, as, as say, a negative thing, which is being kind of described as in everything that I've said. And I suppose it's, it's very well described in terms of change management theory, yeah? That there is a huge emotional and sentimental attachment to the best or the idea of the best of what we've done yeah and that can sometimes mean and I and it's still I can still see it in terms of people's internally their responses to the selling of the building that you know there's one narrative well Karen's really messed up she couldn't keep the building yeah or she was never committed to that anyway do do you know that sort of narrative um, or she doesn't understand the service users or its significance, and you know that. So it becomes quite a personalised thing. But I think, though, we all had very visceral kind of emotional attachments to the building and its history and its role as a heritage site in a very de- you know deprived part of London and the loss of a people-owned heritage site you know, as opposed to a Hampton Court type heritage site. That that was very, very tricky, yeah, for all of us, including the trustees. And there wasn't really separation from trustees and staff in this process, yeah. It wasn't one of the places where there was polarisation. We were very much a kind of collective team at different stages of grasping what the risks were. And in the end... The risks were self-evident in terms of the costs of maintaining a building and whether or not we could do it. And also establishing what our risk appetite was as opposed to what the risks were. And sometimes when we talk about risk, we don't have the, the first stage kind of more fundamental strategic discussion about our appetite for risk and how that relates to our strategic objectives. And the one thing that's always been clear in all the iterations of Cambridge House over 133 years is that the dominant commitment is to people living in poverty and living on the edges of society. And if you really begin to unpack that and look at how you're allocating resources. So running a community hub of the size that we did meant we had to employ quite a large team. And also, and so we were diverting resources away from people mm-hmm. in the community to sustain a building which we wanted to be sustained. The question is, was it our mission as an organisation to sustain a, a landmark and be landlords? Or was our mission to relieve poverty social inequity and social injustice and if we agreed that it was the latter and therefore that maintaining the building meant that within five to ten years we would no longer be delivering the latter 
And so when you express that in terms of risk and do all the proper financial analysis to support your risk options, it it was a fait accompli. It was so evident. But we did have to look at the strategic objectives, our appetite for risk, and we would rather take risk setting up safer renting than take a risk on whether or not we could sustain the building beyond another five years. So actually it's taking the right risks and being brave enough to do that and having done the radical listening that's, that lays the ground for being able to make those decisions, right? But it took nine years. Yeah. Nine years is a long, long time. Oh yeah, it is. Karen, can we ask you to turn your video off so we don't get any visual cues from you and we can wonder about what you the, the issue you've raised just to see whether something new emerges for you. It may not, and it may. Polly, you want to go? Yeah, I, I guess. So I, I guess the problem we're wondering about is people thinking they don't have time for radical listening. And I guess my first thought about that is that some of that really is driven by the fear of what they're going to hear or the fear of what it will lead to if they if people do uh, engage in radical listening um, and reflecting on it from quite in quite a large organization you know the the fear that if you engage in radical listening with the people you're actually there for they may not want what you're doing, they may want something different, or they may not want what you, the leader, think you should be doing even. So for an organisation, there's a huge risk, but for, for, for a leader, there's a huge risk as well, because you've probably set tried to set a vision already. And I guess it's about that ability to be willing to take the direction that the radical listening is going to go in and I think that's the fear maybe rather than the listening itself that's what I'm wondering yes me too I wonder about when anyone says we haven't got time for this what they're giving expression to is what they prioritize right because we always find time for the stuff we really want to do I certainly in my life And I think this is really genuine. And it was more so when my children were younger, but I was genuinely time poor. And there were lots of things that I really, really wanted to do and even should have been doing that I did not have time to do. So I I actually think being time poor is such a real thing that it comes out as a really valid excuse. And it's the same for people working right across uh, certainly the charity sector and the public sector in my experience is that because people are genuinely struggling with very heavy workloads and a sort of burden of expectations they actually gen this is going to be one of my other wonders i wonder whether they actually don't genuinely don't have the mental space for the radical listening and what we really need to be thinking about doing is how we allow our organisations and our people to genuinely have the space in their lives to do something like engaging in radical listening. I don't agree with you about we always find time for things we want, we really want. I, 
I actually think that is really not true. Um, and I feel an enormous responsibility as a leader for the fact that, and I have to acknowledge that this is the case, that the people who work for shelter very often, genuinely, don't have time for everything that they're, that they're being told is important. And so what I would like to, to think about, and I'm really interested in Karen's take on this, actually, is I wonder how we create the space as organisations and as a sector and across sectors for this radical listening to take place, because surely that is going to be the key to change. I really believe, I agree with Carmen, that proper radical listening and acting on it is the key to change. But I think this this finding the time and spacing is, is genuine, is a genuine problem. Yeah, no, I, I see your point. The thing that you've sparked in me, Polly, is... I think there's the term radical listening is uh, really helpful because it's pushing people to the point of really understanding where somebody else is coming from before you one jumps to conclusions or predetermined ideas, etc. But you can still get to base level and disagree. And I think there's something about because we it seems to me we live in an increasingly polarizing context culture. And we need to find ways of radically disagreeing healthily, if that's a a useful term, in which we sit with difference, um, let difference soak in, and rather than rail against it, build on it, you know, build on it on the common ground that's between people in order to reach decisions that neither party could have imagined before they really started to hear one another. And you're right, actually, about the priorities and time thing. I know on the leadership programs we run, we run them over four days and we call them retreat-like. And we deliberately slow the pace down and get people you know, to not be disrupted and no phones and all of that kind of stuff. And it's not until the end of day two or the beginning of day three that people's minds are quiet enough to actually hear one another. And that's when they start to see things afresh because their minds are quieter. And I sort of I'm building on your point, really. We need to find ways that people don't come to listen to one another with that voice in their head that says, I've got an inbox with 300 emails in it, I haven't answered yet, and a deadline to meet by next Friday. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering about your point about disagreeing and, and polarisation and the role that that plays in either listening or not listening. Because I, I've thought about this a hell of a lot, actually, in my role at Shelter and before that as well. So I agree. I really fundamentally believe that trust is more important than agreeing and they're not the same thing. So you can build trust with somebody that you don't agree with. But I also think that holding views people disagree with is much easier the more privileged that you are within that conversation or that group that are having that conversation. And... It's almost about, can you agree on some red lines within a conversation? I think there are some views that I don't want to engage with within a conversation and and that aren't ever going to be helpful. 
And I think it's a difficult one. I'd, I'd rather listen to something I disagreed with from somebody with less power than me and something that I really had to learn about their life experience. I'd be much more willing, or I think I should be, more willing to hear something I disagree with from them than I am from somebody, than they should be from me. I don't, I don't think they have any obligation to listen to me saying things that they find offensive. And um, I think they've got every right to challenge that. That's really difficult to put into practice, but I wonder, I very much wonder what Karen's view is of this. Yes, me too. Because I think disagreements and differences can be, in some cases, super creative and really important and worth listening to and bottoming out. In other cases, I think the idea that you kind of, everybody has a right to say whatever they think, just isn't really helpful at the end of the day. Karen, rejoin us. Was there anything in that that particularly struck you? I think there are a couple of things. I'm going to go back to some of your earlier wonderings. The, this sort of workload management issue and creating space, reflection and time. I've often reflected that I've been my own worst enemy as a leader in that I've chased money. Yeah. And at points I've been brave enough to say, no, I don't want that grant. Actually, the effect of this piece of work on my team is going to be detrimental in terms of our ability to think really proactively. And one of the times that I've done that at Cambridge House, it was where it was an international project that we loved. We loved the partners. We loved the whatever. Do you know what I mean? It was it was a really truly sexy good piece of work that was having an international impact in terms of war zones and inclusive disability and sports and that kind of stuff and in the end I think I was brave enough to look at my head of service and think we cannot do this this is going to kill everybody and the impact on the rest so we sent the grant back and said no and pulled out it was the end of that relationship it will always be a loss but I think the benefit to us was greater and so, and I can remember a few years back having meetings with every commissioner of a, a statutory contract that we held to basically challenge them on the financial viability of it and to basically be handing back contracts or they had to negotiate it. Yeah. And, you know, it took a bit of time, but the board were with me on that. So I think some of the ways I've attempted to create that space that staff need is by saying no to money which is you know I think something that it's is you know if I reflect on my own practice sometimes I've said no to money because it's been unethical to do it and that that's also happened not only with grant funding but also with statutory tenders oh absolutely yeah we, we've done that yeah so I think you know that's something as leaders we often have to reflect on yeah and I, the other side of that is there is something slightly unnerving about our sector. There's also almost a martyrdom about how much we work. And it's almost like if I'm working seven days a week, I really am committed to the cause. Yeah. And I think, you know, we were all guilty of that, of, 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 of believing that the, the career we've chosen 
the, the, the poor unwashed out there need us to work seven days a week at half mast. Yeah. Do you, do you just what I mean? So I think there's also something sl- slightly liberal and complacent in terms of proper business thinking. And by business thinking, I mean, care of your team, care of your staff, care of yourself. You know, if you, if you look at the work life balance stuff, thinking well well hold on if you were a really good business practitioner you'd have this worked out so you know those are things where you know i i sometimes get involved in a bit of self flagellation on the disagreeing and all that kind of stuff i don't think i agree with you pauline and i'm just reflecting on it i think it's maybe as a black woman with a head wrap and dreadlocks yeah i spend and have spent within friendships family and the workplace, an inordinate amount of time having to accommodate debate and disagreement with things that I find deeply, deeply offensive. So I don't think I have the luxury of choosing who I disagree with. I only have, um, I suppose, an increasing resilience about how I manage that. Yeah. And the, the different techniques that I might deploy at any given time to manage something that I think is foul and, and immoral and unethical, do you see what I mean? And how do I do that? And I'm talking about people's power. Yeah. So I, what I was saying was people people shouldn't assume that it is okay to voice things that people don't agree with. It's a free speech is a bit of a sort of function of privilege in a way. Yeah, no, I, I, I do I do accept that. I do accept that. Um, but actually, my challenge would be, how many times have you spoken to a service user and they've actually told you what they think you want to hear? <laughs> Completely. Because they're, all, all, they're also conditioned. And actually, within all of that becomes a kind of thing of self-awareness, yeah? I remember being interviewed, and it's within our sector for a role, where a very senior person said to me um you know this is within the last six seven years um you know how do you feel about joining a board you know that's always chaired by middle class white men and I'm thinking well I think I married one of those and I was thinking much more cruder thoughts I'm married you can take that I was thinking much cruder than that but also that my CV is obvious yeah You know, I've been on government committees and that kind of stuff. And also, I'm clearly of dual heritage. And I'm thinking, what planet? Anyway, all the mood I was in then meant all I did was giggle for the rest of the interview. Yeah, I mean, I I just, you know, when you get giggles and you're, you're crying and you're so pleased you weren't drinking tea or it would come out of your nose, you know, that kind of stuff. It just tickled me so much, yeah. But, you know, and at the time, I I didn't say all the things that were running through my head. The narrative in my head was really brilliant, which is why I was giggling so much. Um, But I did go away and think about how am I going to tackle this? And I did tackle it in a very kind of organised, you know, methodical way and say, you know, if I hadn't have giggled so much, I could have referred you to, you know, you, you broke the law kind of stuff. Do you know what I mean? And it was, a, but I also decided that I couldn't have a one to one with that person because I wanted to tell them to mm, off because they're in a senior position and they should know better. But I did everything else in terms of the recruitment agency and that kind of stuff. Do you see what I mean? 
I think that's a healthy, uh, in, in my head, that's a healthy response because you're only controlling what you can control. And also what you're emotionally up to do. Because sometimes I'd have a conversation one-to-one with the person who did it. But I did at that particular point, it was I I was going to retain the power of deciding what I emotionally or had time to do. And that's one of the things that I think is quite important about disagreement. And we often say you can disagree where there's trust, which made me reflect on when I was working with the police a lot. And, you know, had huge disagreements with um, a, a borough commander. But the two of us, we just liked each other so much. Yeah. And one of the, the things that created the trust was the honesty and the lack of game playing. And actually, if you can trust that people are saying what they really think, that to me is more important than knowing whether I trust them as an individual. Because one of the problems in the workplace is the fact, and I think it's endemic within our sector, is that we've all got to be best friends because we're all politically committed. And I just get bored. I, I don't spend enough time with the friends that I've got. And my, you know, my social life is not with people in the sector, if you see what I mean. I'm, it's like school friends, and that kind of stuff. And so I and it may be how I'm conceptualizing trust, but the people I trust are people I love. Yeah. I don't necessarily think of trust in the same way with people that I'm acquainted with or work with, yeah? I trust by deed and consistency and action, but it's a slightly different, it's less emotionally invested. And I think that trust where people are emotionally invested in each other in the workplace actually can make disagreements go completely haywire. And you think if you weren't, so wanting to be liked on a emotional level by this person actually on a professional level you could deal with this disagreement better so do you think then just the question that I think um came out of when we were doing our wondering came out of initially what Roger said was is what is the role of disagreement or how what's the effect of disagreement on radical listening excitement oh that's interesting i don't like rows yeah i'm not somebody who like you know all i do is 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 cry and then i think i'm not a feminist anymore because i'm crying earlier than the next do you know what i mean it's sort of you know all those kind of things at the back of your head incorrectly often do you know what i mean in your subconscious but if you've got a fragile ego disagreement is really problematic yeah now i know i've got an ego but it's not particularly fragile. So there's a bit of me that doesn't care if people disagree with me. I think you don't have to listen to what I'm saying. And part of, I think, the role that a leader can have is saying, well, why are you so invested in you all agreeing the same thing? Because actually having, I like having my thinking challenged. That's what I want for everybody. Yes, so you don't agree with me do you know what I mean and it often gets me into trouble because I'll say to you know very dear friend what the hell are you wearing that looks awful and I sometimes forget that some friends will just say to me well who cares what you think and some will then worry about it for the next three or four hours do you know what I mean Mm -hmm. I think this is really deep and interesting stuff I think there is an interplay between what you've been saying there between radical listening trust and excitement within a disagreement because 
I see that with my business partner, Paul. We disagree a lot, but we trust one another 100%. I mean, I trust a lot of my staff. They're not friends. I trust them because we've had really good working relationships. Sometimes our politics, our views are are miles apart. But as you say, you learn a lot from the disagreement. That's what's exciting. It's that growth piece. Yeah. I make it a point of understanding views that are different to my own. So I I was a keen Remainer. I've studied all the Brexit views and the, you know, I'm not sure I still agree with them, but at least I, when, we, when the referendum was, um, came out the way it did, I almost felt duty bound to understand why I'd lost. You see, you're obviously a better person than me because I just, I could go on about, you know, the Magna Carta, the runny me, the this and that and the other, or, you know, my Tory grandmother spinning in her grave because we'd come out of Europe. I just couldn't understand it. I mean, I think what's really funny is when you can't understand, yeah? And that's what I'm saying. That often some of the things that are said to me as a black woman, I just don't understand why anyone could think that. You know, I mean, I'm just... It's that thing about sometimes you have to accept that you will never understand where someone's coming from. That doesn't stop you working, engaging, you know, it, it, it doesn't have to define everything, yeah? And it's that sort of, well, I can't get it through today, maybe I can get it through tomorrow. I mean, you know, that's what I'm saying about not having fragile egos, you know, that, that having that resilience and robustness to think, well, everyone thinks I've caught that up, so be it. And that's where the excitement is. Like, what next? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? so, so now what? And, yeah. and also, the thing about radicalism is it stops things being boring. I mean, I don't know about you two, but I would say, and this is probably a disastrous thing to say, at least 60%, probably a lot of the time, doing my job, I'm bored of sin. Most of what I do is as boring as hell, and I've done it in lots of different organisations, and please, when can it stop and when can I retire? Do you see what I mean? And so you look for those bits that are just challenging and just throw out the status quo of your daily job do you see what I mean and that's what I'm saying that is that thing about excitement you know that most of what we do on a daily basis is so humdrum being there and maybe that's also something about you know being in your city oh I've done oh I've got to do another grant oh I'm writing another annual report you know I've got a phobia about writing annual reports now and I say to Polly I hate fundraising though I'm the lead fundraiser and I'm quite good at it do you know what I mean it's just like oh good grief but knowing sometimes that there's excitement in the process or you know as a result or it's opening up something or it may just just tick you a little bit closer to something and also I think maybe what I reconcile is that speed of change is slow and that the change that we talk about in a better way is really slow um and you know it's quite funny if I think back to say um my grandparents generation whether in terms of the Yorkshire you know I had a granny Yorkshire and a granny Trinidad whether you know their sense of the speed of change was so different to ours do you know what I mean <laughs> having gone through world wars and that kind of stuff they expected things to move slowly and things that we would find intolerable in terms of slowness of speed they thought was horribly fast and um you know, it's worth sometimes just reminding ourselves of our personal journeys, our organisational journeys, and really reflecting on 
on what the barriers to change are that we're trying to do. And all the barriers that we talk about within Better Way are barriers that have established over hundreds of years. So why do we think we're going to change them quickly? So it's that sense of perspective that we can lose. And that's also related to sense of ego. I want to make this change. Well, actually, you may only be a small molecule. Tiny cog in it. Absolutely. Yeah, in that change process and us having to be satisfied with that. Thank you very much indeed. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. It's been quite good, isn't it? I've enjoyed this. I've, I've loved, um, what is really going to stay with me is that idea of excitement and disagreement. I just think we need to find that. Again, within our organisations as well, we don't have to have groupthink. We can have that excitement, and I, mm. I really like that. Yeah, no, me too. Karin, thank you. Thank you so much. A pleasure. Thank you, Karin. That was our conversation with Karin Woodley. On the next episode, Polly and I talked to Amanda Hales. Amanda is a trustee for the Lankley Trust Foundation. And we talked to her about what happens when women who've survived trauma, a lifetime of trauma in fact, took their city council to court. Amanda also talks us about how do you get your seat on the table when new policy in your area is being developed and shaped. In the meantime, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast to keep up to date with our future episodes. You can also get in touch with us and or our guests by using the contact details in the episode notes. Until next time, thanks for listening. We'll be back very soon on A Better Way, the podcast. Mm -hmm.